There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch with Colin and Greg. I usually say Greg and Colin, but it's written backwards today, Greg. Well, you're speaking, so you can have your name first. Okay. With Colin and Greg. How's that? We we should have sound effects for that. (laughs) Well, last week we got into the capital asset pricing model, talking about how it was a foundation for things like the arbitrage pricing theory and ultimately factor investing. And this week we're going to finish off our series. I think this will be our last very technical episode. I don't know if people have enjoyed the technical episodes. I have personally, but I don't know about others. Well, sometimes it's good to have an understanding that how stocks are picked, how stocks are priced, there is an academic underpinning that explains that or could explain that. And that's the whole idea here. Yeah, it's that or a dartboard. I mean, exactly. I would prefer to have technical aspects behind the scenes. So right on. we also, I should mention last week talked about there was this risk in the world, this risk of a war between, well, Russia basically invading Ukraine. That's right. And when we recorded our last episode, it had not occurred. Since then, this invasion has obviously occurred and we definitely are thinking about the people that are being impacted by it. And I don't really know what to say about it, Greg. It's tragic. And people are becoming refugees, numbers in the millions now, and an independent, democratically elected government is on the line here. So it's terrible. It's scary, sad, tragic, all those things. And We won't do it any justice on our conversation today, but just wanted to call it out. Right on. So listen, before we get into today's topic, here's a quick review of the models and theories that we discussed over the last few weeks. We talked about expected returns, which in their simplest form are based on historical returns. So that's the assumption that what's happened in the past over many years or decades could provide a general idea of what could happen in the future. That gets into this discussion about risk versus uncertainty, where risk can be measured and uncertainty is, of course, uncertain. So expected returns are based off of probability functions of risk-reward measure. So we reviewed volatility, which is just a statistical measure of how much actual returns deviate from the median or average returns. And in that, we looked at things like standard deviation. We could have talked about semi-deviation, which is actually just the downside risk because Nobody really gets concerned about the upside volatility. We never get phone calls about that. No, when the market's way up, nobody says, oh my God, what's happening? So people are more concerned about the downside volatility and that is called semi-deviation. We discussed the capital asset pricing model, which I mentioned, or CAPM, in which expected returns are based on a single factor, which is called beta. And that's just a measure of volatility of a portfolio or a stock relative to the volatility of the market as a whole. And I'm going to bring one more thing into that conversation, Greg. That's actually called a coefficient of determination. What that means in English is that if you have an independent variable and a dependent variable, 
there's a measure of how much the independent variable will affect the dependent variable. Right on. So in the capital asset pricing model, beta is the independent variable. It can be higher or lower. Whereas the market risk premium, which is just the expected return of the market minus the risk-free rate, is the dependent variable, which is just static. Heavy. That is kind of heavy. I don't know why I got into that, but I think I just kind of like saying coefficient of determination. Yeah, it's good. And we discussed the arbitrage pricing theory, which expands on the CAPM by including some macroeconomic factors that could affect returns. So the beta of different factors like GDP or inflation or, I don't know, others, they have an impact on stock pricing. And we lastly introduced factor investing, which talks about different style factors as a source of higher expected returns. And that's where we're going to spend our time today on. That was a really long introduction, Greg. Well, you summed up the last four episodes in about a minute and a half. So I guess that's pretty good. I think we summed up the last 50 years of finance in the last minute and a half. But Exactly. Yeah. Where do we start, Greg? Where do we start? This will probably be the last time we say this today. CAPM is basically a single factor model where expected returns are based on the market beta volatility relative to the market as a whole for a portfolio or a stock. And CAPM was and does still remain to be an excellent tool, but unfortunately there's some anomalies that can't be explained by a single factor model. And so back in 1981, a fellow by the name of Rolf Banz worked on what's called the size effect by analyzing New York Stock Exchange stocks from 1926 to 1975. And basically his findings were that smaller companies' expected stock returns were higher than those for larger companies. Now, before we get too much into discussing those factors, I just want to talk for a minute about where the information for this research comes from. So his research and the work basically of an entire generation of financial economics benefit tremendously from a massive historical data gathering project which is known as the Center for Research in Security Prices, or CRISP, which was established at the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business, now known as the Booth School of Business, but this was established back in 1960. And essentially, it was just a massive data-gathering project that was made possible by the use of computers, of course. Probably pretty large computers that took up whole floors of buildings. In those days, absolutely. Before that time, nobody could even say with certainty what the average rate of return was, from investing in the stock market. So Merrill Lynch initially funded this project, but CRISP made it possible for researchers to work with quality data to test a model's predictions and understand the way that stock markets work. So they could build models and then go back and look at the actual results and see if their models stood up. So one body of research that benefited greatly from the CRISP database was a series of empirical papers that basically challenged the predictions of the capital asset pricing model. Bear with me here, because the logic goes like this. So the CAPM says that the expected return of an individual stock must depend on its relation to the risk of the market portfolio. That's the beta, as we talked about. The CAPM predicts that if one looks across stocks, the difference in betas should be the only reason that expected returns differ. So if you've got three stocks that all have a beta of 1.05, then their returns should all be exactly the same, or would be expected to be the same. However, there was a very influential paper in 1992 by Fama and French that we'll be talking about more in a little bit that brings together earlier papers that tested the CAPM and find that beta actually does not do a great job of explaining average returns. And so all of the likely candidates that have come up in the literature, company size, 
and price to book value seemed to provide a pretty good, or at that time, seemed to provide a pretty good characterizations of return. In particular, small companies and firms whose stock trade at low prices relative to the other stocks, despite having substantial assets on their books, tended to show higher returns. So if stocks are always correctly priced, then investors must think that such companies are riskier compared to large companies and firms with higher price-to-book values. So small companies and firms that the market judges to have poor prospects have to offer investors a higher return to convince them to buy their stocks. Makes sense. So this suggests that the size and the financial health of a company are true risk factors that can't be diversified away. So that has implications for how investors decide to allocate their portfolios. Investors now understand that they have the option of tilting their investments to get more exposure to small cap stocks and so-called value stocks, but that depends entirely on an investor's appetite for risk. And here's a quote from Eugene Fama. You're basically giving a little more complicated risk story, but that doesn't imply that everybody will tilt in the direction of higher returns because the higher returns are the expense of higher risk. So that work was carried on in 1993 when Eugene Fum and Ken French published a paper entitled Common Risk Factors in the Returns on Stocks and Bonds in the Journal of Financial Economics. This represented a big improvement on the single factor CAPM by explaining some of the anomalies that they had identified in the research made possible by the CRISP database. The size effect was confirmed in international markets in 1995 because previously it had been identified mainly in the U.S. market, with evidence written into a paper in the Journal of Empirical Finance titled The Structure of International Stock Returns and the Integration of Capital Markets. These guys got to do a better job of branding or marketing. They got to come up with shorter, better titles. These stocks do better. Yeah. Something like that. So what does that mean? Well, it means that there are decades of work that have been dedicated to understanding various factors of return. Fama co-wrote another paper with Ken French, The Cross-Section of Expected Stock Returns. And based on the work in this paper, the Fama French three-factor model was developed. Now, the basis of the Fama French factor model is that there are different factors of return in different asset classes that when you include them in a well-built portfolio, you improve your chances of achieving higher expected returns. Do you always get higher returns by having these factors, Greg? Absolutely not. And that's why we're quite careful to talk about expected returns. Okay, and that's the same thing with whether you're using a single model like CAPM or the arbitrage pricing theory or factor models, style factors. And that is that these are only expected returns which have been identified over long periods of time. But in short periods of time, meaning one, two, three, five years, you absolutely may not get those higher expected returns. So, Before everyone gets the idea that you don't need your advisor now because you know how to get higher expected returns, (laughs) the article continues with helping clients frame their overall financial goals around their children's education and their own retirement, for example, and then helping them construct realistic spending, saving, and investment plans designed to achieve those goals, which is something, of course, that we always talk about. And that's what we call goals-based planning. So it's not only the investment returns. We have to take into account individuals' risk tolerances, and the risk of achieving or not achieving financial goals that individuals set. Okay, so last week we talked about a number of factors that had been explored. So in addition to size and relative price, we talked about momentum, quality, low volatility. And in fact, there's been hundreds and hundreds of different factors that have been identified as having potential information about future returns. 
And it turns out that there's many factors that are just correlated with the market returns, but actually have nothing to do with causing higher expected returns. And so those ones get eliminated fairly quickly. But there are many factors such as quality or low volatility that actually turn out to be essentially captured in some of the original work done by Fama and French around value. From a practicality standpoint, from an investment standpoint, you can only slice and dice the market so many different ways. And so we have to focus on the most common factors that have been well identified and for providing information about future expected returns. And that's what we'll do now. Yeah, let's talk about some of those common factors that have been identified that we're actually investing in. So we do run model portfolios. Within our models, we hold these funds that are run by a company called Dimensional Fund Advisors. Greg, are we recommending DFA products to people? Yes, we are. Yes, 100% because they are part of our model portfolios. The premise of them is built around the factor models of Eugene Fama and Ken French. So those factors, the three factors that are most prevalent are market, size, and price. And a fourth factor has been built in around corporate profitability. So let's talk about those. So market. Market just means you're rewarded more or you have a higher expectation of reward for being invested in the stock market versus the bond market over long periods of times. This is called the equity premium. And that makes sense to most people that if there's a decision to invest in stocks versus bonds, you would expect over a long period of time, you'd be rewarded more for being invested in stocks. Well, that's right. And that kind of makes sense. And as we've talked before, I mean, the whole basis of capitalism is that the providers of capital have an expected return that's correlated with the risk that they're taking by putting their capital at risk. And I think when you think about stocks and bonds, it's just kind of intuitive that, well, okay, if a bond is an obligation of a company or a government body or sovereign entity to pay you back that money and you have a higher standing in the overall corporate structure. And so that's a liability of the company that has to be repaid first. And so it makes sense that bondholders have lower risk than stockholders because stockholders, of course, are further down the chain. And obviously stocks have a much higher risk than holding cash, which theoretically has no risk in terms of actually losing value on a nominal basis. Well, other than purchasing power. Exactly. But okay, so the first factor, summarizing that. It makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Stocks have higher expected returns than, yeah. And they've quantified that number. And I don't have the exact number in front of me, but it's somewhere around 8%. So over the last 80 years of stock market data, that market risk premium, that equity premium accounts for something like 8% in total return. That's right. In the US market. That's right. Now this data comes from that crisp data. We're not making this up. No. The second factor, size. Size makes a lot of sense to me in that you're looking at small companies versus large companies. And the expected return on small companies is higher than large companies. And this is called the size premium. So just think of this as if you have a small company, it just has more room to grow than a large company that has already grown. And by the way, it probably also has more risk. Yes. Because it doesn't have maybe a history of solid earnings for the last 30 or 40 or 50 years. That's right. It's a smaller company and smaller companies tend to fail. And so there's a higher risk associated with them and therefore a higher return or expected return. And another thing to think about, of course, these days when you see some of these mega companies, these massive technology companies that are now dominating the S&P 500, these were all small companies when they started. And wouldn't all of us have loved to be invested in those companies when they were small? 
You mean like Apple when it was created in Steve Jobs' garage or something or that, basement? That kind, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, anyways, the size premium, its return factor over the last 80 or so years is somewhere between 2 and 3% per that's year. That's right. Above the overall market. Above. That's yeah. right. So that's the second factor. The third factor we want to look at is price. And when we talk about price, we're talking about what we would call value versus growth. So we're talking about companies whose stocks are priced high versus low, just in simple terms. And a high-priced company stock would be a company that, if you look at their price earnings multiple, their stock price is trading at some high level compared to the earnings of the company. Whereas a value company, their stock price is trading at a lower level of earnings to the company. I think that's just the easiest way to explain it. So this is called the price premium or the value premium. And again, over the last 80 or so years, this is added somewhere between 2 and 3% in excess return. Now, the fourth factor that's built into the DFA model portfolios is corporate profitability. And this one makes sense too. So basically, if you have two companies that are doing the same thing in the same market, but one company is just for whatever reason, more profitable than the other one, well, then it has a higher expected rate of return. That's pretty straightforward. So those are the basic factors for stocks. There are also factors for bonds to consider. So the two main ones we're going to talk about today are credit quality and term to maturity. So credit quality is just that bonds with lower credit quality, so in other words, bonds that have a higher risk of default, like not paying back their people that lent them the money, They have a higher expected rate of return. They've got to pay you more because they have more risk associated with them. Exactly. So if you think of like the government of Canada bond, which has a pretty low risk versus a, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a small company. Kmart. Kmart. Are they still around? I don't think so. Yeah. I think they've already gone bankrupt. (laughs) Well, let's think of something Canadian. I don't know, like a Rona. Is Rona a Canadian company still? I don't even know. No, I think they're by lows, but let's go back in time. Think of Rona versus the government of Canada. Sure. One has a higher expected rate of default than the other, and it's not the government. So its bonds would pay less than the Rona bonds. The second factor in bonds is term to maturity. So the longer time horizon for a bond to mature, the more things that can happen just in the meantime. You could have interest rate increases or decreases, you could have recessions, expansions. I don't know, global pandemics, you could have threat of nuclear war. Sure. So shorter bonds have a shorter time frame to deal with these issues. And longer bonds might be more price sensitive to them. And one of the ways to think about it in simple terms is if you think about you can buy government bonds up to 30 years in in term, or you can buy them with a two-year or three-year term. And so I find the easiest way to think about it is with regards to the impact of changes in interest rates. So let's say you own a 30-year bond paying 3% and interest rates go up to 4%. Well, you're missing out on that 1% of extra interest every year for 30 years until that bond matures. So that's going to have a massive price impact on that 30-year bond. Whereas if you own a bond that matures in two years and interest rates go up 1%, you're only missing out for a couple of years. That's right. And so the long-term impact is not as great and therefore the impact on the price of the bond will be a lot smaller. Do you ever watch that movie G-Force, Greg? I did not. I think I mentioned this before, G-Force, a movie about guinea pigs that have extra powers that save the world. I'll have to put that on the list. 
<laughs> it's a kid's movie. <laughs> but when our kids were young, it was one of their favorites. And in it, the girl guinea pig mentions that men are like government bonds. They take way too long to mature. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Pretty funny. Uh, okay. Okay, listen, those are the various factors of return when it comes to stock or bond selection that you could use to improve the likelihood or the expected outcomes. So listen, what does this mean? So we now have an academic understanding of those factors of expected return. And what does that mean for investment management, which of course, many of us are keenly interested in? So you've got a lot of money managers now that are offering factor-based products. This work has been developed from advancements in research that we talked about, the CAPM in 1963, the size effect in 1981, the value or price effect in 1991-2-3, and a corporate profitability in 2012. So there's been an evolution in identifying expected return based on factors, and that's also led to the evolution in investment management. So if you go back to the old days, conventional investment management attempted to identify mispricing in securities. And so that's what we've talked about in the past, buying individual securities on a belief that, oh, these things must be mispriced and they're priced too low. And therefore, when the market wises up, they'll go up a lot faster than the market and you'll get a higher expected return. That approach really relies on forecasting to select undervalued securities or to time the market. And that forecasting, obviously, as we know, is very difficult to do. And when you think about it, when you buy a stock that you believe is undervalued, somebody else is selling you that stock and they must believe the price is over. The stock is overvalued and in the end, only one of you can be right. That approach tends to generate higher expenses. You have trading costs, higher taxes and risks associated with that higher expenses. Well, and they call that a zero-sum game. For That's every right. winner, there's a loser. And actually, I think Fama and French call it a negative-sum game because there's a winner and a loser, but there's also transaction costs. Everybody pays fees on both sides of that. Yeah. That's right. We've talked in the past around an index management, which is maybe a slightly better approach because what it allowed people to do was to use commercial indexes basically to determine a strategy. So if we're talking about the S&P 500, an index management or an index fund basically tries to match the index's performance by restricting which securities to hold and when to trade based entirely on the stocks that make up the index and their appropriate proportion and any changes that may happen to that index over time. And that approach prioritizes low tracking error, meaning not deviating much from the index over higher expected returns. When you're an index investor, you hope to get the index return and you will never expect to get a higher return. In our terminology, that would be passive investing strategies. Right. You're accepting market returns with the belief that nobody can really pick stocks on their own. Exactly. And then finally, we have what we'll call a postmodern or alternate approach, which gains insights about markets and returns from academic research, which is just what we've been talking about. This model of investment to management structures portfolios along those dimensions of expected returns and adds value by integrating research, portfolio, and structure and implementation. And so the approach that we use in our models is basically to incorporate what the scientific and academic research has told us about factors that lead to possibly higher expected returns in the future. And why wouldn't you try to capture those? So that's it. That's the wrap up. That's it. We've solved it all. Right on. <laughs> well, like I said at the beginning, I know that the last, I want to say four, maybe five episodes have been pretty technical. Yep. And I'm sure that there's some people who are like, oh God, Cap M again, would you guys move on? <laughs> but 
it's important stuff. And I promise that this is our last episode on that for a while. I know next week we actually have a lawyer joining us and he's going to talk about things like franchise rights and a very different conversation totally than what different. we just talked yep, about. But And in the meantime, again, reiterating what we said at the beginning, how do you deal with, I don't know, what's going on in the world? We're talking about things like capital asset pricing model, arbitrage pricing theory and all this stuff, but we cannot rationalize what's happening in Ukraine. No. And with that, we're going to play a little song that you selected, Greg, just to close out. For anyone that wants to sort of hear the whole thing, it's a song that Sting of the police fame, Sting wrote back in 1985. And it was just talked about at that time, the Cold War. But I think a lot of the ideas are still relevant. Let's play it. Play a bit anyway. It's a bit of a gap here, but... Yeah. Again, if you want to listen to it, it's available on the World Wide Web. Yep. Yeah. Well, here's hoping that people, regardless of where they live, love their children's enough to keep stupid things from happening. All right. Until next time. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.